Will you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that your spirit will take your word and that we might be those who have soft hearts to listen to your gospel. Please, Father, help us to be those who are not ashamed, who are not afraid. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Fever, muscle pain, severe headache, vomiting, unexplained bleeding, death. Uh, The recent Ebola outbreak was one of the uh, scariest uh, in our world has seen. Uh, 10,000 cases. And it's not as easily transmitted as SARS was, but far more deadly. One out of two people who contracted it died. The picture of graves, especially in West Africa, we've all seen the pictures of the bodies, isn't it? Of children abandoned to die, family members weeping over them, hopeless, weak, no magic drug treatment. And there was the risk they would go beyond West Africa. Very easily, could have spread all over the world. A plane trip, a delay or even denial of the uh, symptoms, a kiss, a close contact, it could really have got out of hand until there was a hope of a vaccine. A special risk, of course, were the uh, medical workers. Here's a picture of uh, Dr... Whoa, where we go? Dr Martin uh, Selim in the United Methodist Hospital in Sierra Leone, he became a victim of Ebola, left behind a wife, two kids. And yet the medical personnel kept flooding in from all over the world, many of them Christians. In Sierra Sierra Leone alone, 320 medical staff perished. A local billboard had a picture of all of them, and on the top it said, our heroes. Fighting Ebola? No shame. What about suffering for the gospel? Is there shame in that? Well, that's the point of this whole last letter of Paul to Timothy. It's all about no fear, no shame. Have a look at chapter 1 and verse 8. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel. Paul is in prison. 1 verse 8, he's the Lord's prisoner. He's there because of Jesus, not because of any kind of criminal activity. Verse 10 to 12, he's suffering for the sake of the gospel. Verse 16 to 17, he's in Rome in chains. A persecution instigated by the non-Christian Jews, as we read in Acts. Arrested, shipped to Rome for trial. In the first century, it was actually quite risky to be a missionary, to be a pastor. In Australia, pastors are fairly safe. I looked up the insurance premium for my life, life insurance. It's actually quite low. Uh, The main risk is uh, sitting in front of my computer all day and the sedentary lifestyle and getting a heart attack from that. But imagine if you were in Syria or North Korea or parts of Southeast Asia or even China. Who would actually insure you. No premium would be high enough. 
And so for the Apostle Paul, even when he was not in prison, he was always in and out of danger from city to city, chased. Once he was stoned and left for dead. And at the end of chapter 4 in 2 Timothy, he actually expects to die. His first defence did not go well. The only way he's going to get rescue, he thinks, is that he's going to go to heaven. According to tradition, a year or so after this letter, he was beheaded. Death for the sake of the gospel. No fear, no shame. And so verse 12, the gospel which I've been appointed to, that is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. But there were some who accompanied Paul, Paul and company, who sadly were ashamed. In 1 verse 15, he says, all in Asia, and he names two of them, had deserted him. Uh, most famously, if you look at chapter 4 verse 10, is a guy called Demas, who because he loved this present world, deserted Paul. One of the members of our congregation many years ago wanted to name his son, a newborn, uh, Demas. And Charles Gages and I said, no, 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 don't do that. <laughs> and he said, well, why not? He was a friend of Paul. You know, Colossians chapter 4, he was. And we said to him, yes, but have you read 2 Timothy? <laughs> he was a friend of Paul. <laughs> Ever been deserted by others for the sake of the gospel? I remember my first year uni, I was in the behavioural science class, and the tutorial was called uh, The Medicalization of Deviance. And we all had to play a part, do a little seminar. And I thought, ah, okay, medicalization of deviance. What kind of deviant behaviour can I talk about? And so I said to the group, um, look, you've got to have a standard from which you deviate. And then I drew the first box of two ways to live. <laughs> And then I tried to get to the second box, you know, deviant behaviour is therefore sin, and I didn't get much past that. Uh, there was lots of discussion at the end. The tutor said, well, at least you got a lot of discussion. But as I looked around the room, there were three other Christians there. I looked to them, and what did they do? Nothing. Poor me. All stuck by myself. But what Paul goes through is in a completely different ballpark, isn't it? Abandoned in prison, alone. And no one is with him except verse 15 to 18, Onesiphorus. He wasn't ashamed of Paul's chains. He took the initiative many times, painstaking, risk-taking, effort to find Paul in prison and refreshed him. And the challenge for us is that will we have been ashamed of Paul or not? Will we have been like Demas? Or will we have been like Onesiphorus? That's exactly the question that faced Timothy. And so chapter 1, verse 8 again, Paul tells Timothy, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Share in suffering for the gospel. Paul wants Timothy to actually come to him, to see him. Of all the co-workers Paul had, Timothy was a special one. He is, as you see in chapter 1, verse 2, his dear son. Not that he's actually his own son. Nor that Timothy became a Christian through Paul, but... We see in Acts chapter 16 that when Paul first met Timothy, uh, Timothy was already uh, quite a mature Christian. 
But Timothy was the son of Paul in terms of he did his father's trade. In the olden days, uh, what your dad does is well, what you do in life, in business. Well, Paul was in the business of preaching the gospel. And Timothy was his apprentice, his protege, or in Star Wars terms, his padawan. There's close ties between the two. Chapter 1, verse 2, he's his beloved son. Verse 3 and 4, Paul is in constant prayer for Timothy. Uh, he remembers the tears when they last parted. He looks forward to the joy of seeing him again, a special relationship. Paul had built on this heritage that Timothy had from his own upbringing, his own family. Verse 5, he was son of his mother Eunice and grandson of his grandmother Lois, brought up as a, as a faithful Jew. Indeed, these two influential women in Tim's life uh, could have been Christians even before him. According to Acts 16, Timothy's father was a Gentile, uh, probably not a believer, but his mother, his grandmother, great influence. It's important in a conference like this, as we think about full-time ministry, to be reminded of the very important ministry of motherhood. That in God's purpose, uh, this intensive ministry to your own children uh, may even take precedence over outward public full-time ministry, if indeed you are a mother. I remember Don Carson saying of his mother that one of his mother's favourite sayings is, I'm not just wiping noses and changing nappies, I'm building character. Friends, full-time mums are in full-time ministry, just that they are unpaid. Unless you think of your husband actually freeing you from work, he goes out to work and he lets you do ministry at home. So in that sense, he's paying for you to do it, isn't he? Just signalling out there, the men and women, well, you've got to think about this full-time, perhaps slightly differently. More of that as the conference goes on. Paul, when he met Timothy, already had that great faith. Timothy was there to be moulded and shaped by Paul. And so he reminds Timothy of this faith from young. Uh, those of us who have the privilege of being Christians from a Christian home, it's a great privilege, isn't it? Uh, don't despise it. Uh, don't wish, ah... Oh, if only I was you know, an immoral, bad, drug-taking, bikey with tattoos on my arm, and then I can tell this great conversion experience, that would be really cool. But friends, it's great to be born in a Christian family. It's great to not have to go through perhaps some of those difficult things that others have to go through. Paul had a faithful young man to start training. And so chapter 1, verse 6, he reminds Timothy of his past with Timothy, how he laid hands on him. Now here, all the commentaries basically think this is about some kind of a commissioning or some kind of ordination service uh, that Timothy went through. They often link it to a 1 Timothy chapter 4. But on that occasion, uh, it's actually the body of elders who laid hands on Timothy. Uh, Paul's not mentioned there. And here, it is Paul who imparts some special gift of God, you see in verse 6, to Timothy for his ministry. And Paul asks Timothy to remember that occasion, to fan it into flame, to rekindle that gift. A gift that will, verse 7, give him power, not fear, give him backbone, 
so that he would not wimp out of preaching the gospel with Paul. But has it got anything to do with some kind of commissioning or ordination? Um, actually, um, you might not know, but I'm actually an ordained Anglican minister. And the joke always has been, at least around Sydney, that when you get ordained as an Anglican, you actually lose your backbone. You lose your spine and your courage. Well, at my ordination, I thought of um, you know, wearing underneath the big black clergy cloak that I had on, a little backbone. I had a little backbone, a real skeleton from my medical days. <laughs> I thought of hiding that behind in underneath with a little hook. And then as I kneeled down and then Archbishop Peter Jensen laid his hands on me. And then as I got up, I somehow unhook it and this backbone comes flowing down and crackle on the floor. Now, that would be an ordination to remember. I pray it would get defrocked very quickly. If I was going to have spine and backbone to face persecution, I'd hear, it's not my ordination I'll be looking back to. But that's not why I think these two verses is actually not talking about Timothy's ordination. It's actually for some other reason, something far more significant. You see, what is the gift of God in verse 6 that Tim got through the apostle? There's some kind of a zap, some kind of superpower charge, an inner strength uh, through his ordination or commissioning. Uh, verse 6 and 7 may first sound like it. Verse 6, For this reason I remind you to fan into the flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Uh, many people think that the, this gift of God is some kind of spirit of power. You know, like, you know, grump of little boys and the soccer team, half-time, four-nil down, but in the halfway, the coach gives them a really good pep talk. They go out and they catch up and it's four-all, you know, into the second half and the coach shouts, well done, boys, that's the spirit. And so sometimes people think that's the kind of spirit, you know, that, that Timothy got, a spirit of power. But I want to suggest to you that the spirit in verse 7 is actually a capital S spirit. It's actually the Holy Spirit. That is the gift of God, verse 6, which is in Timothy, is verse 7, the Holy Spirit that God gave us. The gift of God, and then straight next verse, the spirit that God gave us. And this gift of God in verse 6 is in you, Timothy, and that parallels down in verse 14, where the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Verse 6 and 7 is the gift of God that God gave us, that is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who enables Timothy to do what he's going to do. And so down in verse 14, in parallel, it's by the Holy Spirit that Timothy is able to guard the good deposit. That's Timothy's told to fan into flame the Holy Spirit. Like a fire going out and you get an A4 folder and you fan and get the oxygen going. So the flame lights up again. Timothy, remember the Holy Spirit who's in you. You can depend on him through suffering to give you power, love, self-control, to rise to the occasion of suffering. He's not a spirit of fear. He's a spirit of, of power throughout the book of Acts. Whenever people are preaching the gospel and the Spirit uh, comes 
and they're filled with the Spirit, they always have boldness to preach the gospel. Spirit of power. He's a spirit of love, of self-control. After all, that's the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. He enables us to love God, to love others, to have that self-control so that you don't wimp out, you don't duck when persecution comes. You keep your head. That is the gift of God referred to verse 6. But then why does Paul say the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands? Did the Holy Spirit come upon Timothy through Paul laying hands on him? What are we talking about? When did it happen? What's the significance? Now remember I said that Timothy's father was a Gentile. And that would have made Timothy a Gentile as well. Indeed, when Paul first met him, uh, Timothy was uncircumcised. Now, Acts chapter 16, when Paul meets Timothy, it doesn't mention Paul laying hands on Timothy and giving him the gift of God, that is the Spirit. But throughout the book of Acts, the apostles do lay hands on the Gentile converts. So they may get the gift of God, that they may get the Holy Spirit. And so, for example, in Acts Chapter 2, verse 38, uh, speaking to the Jewish Christians and the day of Pentecost, or just before it, uh, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, this gift is called a gift. Chapter 8, verse 20, uh, to Simon the magician who wanted to uh, buy the Holy Spirit, um, uh, the apostle said, uh, you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. In chapter 10, verse 45, the Cornelius episode, uh, Peter and the other Jews, Jewish Christians are amazed that Cornelius, the Gentile, uh, has become a Christian because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on them. That is, throughout the book of Acts, there are key turning points. Uh, chapter 2 is when the Jewish Christians get the Holy Spirit for the first time, and then in chapter 8, the um, Samaritans, the half-Jew, half-Gentile, they get the Spirit. And then Cornelius in chapter 10, the Gentile, he receives the Holy Spirit. He's God's Spirit coming upon these different groups of people. And quite a few times it's by the apostles coming down and laying hands on the people for them to receive the Spirit. What is the significance? Well, chapter 11, verse 15 tells us, Peter defends what he has done with Cornelius and he says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, on these Gentiles, just as on us, us Jewish Christians, at the beginning. That is, at the beginning at Acts chapter 2, at the beginning of, of the Pentecost. That is, the Gentiles, the Samaritans, they have the same Holy Spirit. They are marked out as fully the people of God, just like the Jewish people. They are marked out as first-class citizens of the kingdom. They're not second-class Christians. And more than that, these Gentile Christians, they have truly been God's people without having to obey the law. The law-free gospel it is the testimony of Jesus. It is faith in Jesus alone that enables the Jews, the Samaritans, the Gentiles all to come to God and to be right with him. Remember, it was the non-Christian Jews 
who put Paul in prison. Why? Because Paul kept on sidelining the Mosaic law. He said, you don't have to do the Ten Commandments in order to get right with God. And the Jewish non-Christians hated that. And so you start piecing the things together. See, what would motivate Timothy to suffer with Paul? Why is it worth suffering with Paul? What is Paul suffering for and is it worth it? Paul's saying, well, Timmy boy, uh, Timmy Gentile boy, remember how you received the Holy Spirit from me. That marked you out as God's person, God's people, accepted to God. Remember that gospel that you received. That is the same gospel that's got me into prison. That's why I'm suffering. Are you coming or not? And so chapter 1 verse 6, For this reason I remind you to fan to flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a holy, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. He then is Paul encouraging Timothy to come with him. And so verse 14, by the same Holy Spirit who dwells in us, Jewish, Gentile, Christian, us, all of us, by that Holy Spirit guard the good deposit. That is, it's not to some special commissioning or, or um, induction that was particular to Timothy that's going to get him through the hard times. It's the gospel message itself. It's God coming and declaring us right with him and us all having the spirit. Uh, by the time you get to uh, the end of Acts, by the time even you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, all Christians have the Holy Spirit. Right? So we don't have to go through that you know, sort of two-stage uh, Christian without the Spirit and now Christian with the Spirit anymore. You know, that turning point ha has happened. What about us? What if we don't have an experience of some special um, zap, special calling from God? Now some people think you need a calling from God in order to do ministry. I heard of a man who said, oh, I was walking down the road and I saw this empty bottle that was actually half full and it was cracked and that spoke to me of the world that it's empty and half cracked and so there's my call into the ministry friends you don't need to look at that just, just look at the gospel that'll tell you about our world people want visions, people want voices I once was lying in my bed and I heard a voice in my room and said Joshua so I went to my parents' room and I said, did you call me? <laughs> my parents said, no, we didn't call you. I said, okay, been back to bed. Joshua! So I went to my sister's room, did you call me? I said, no. So I went back to bed and I was about to say, yes, Lord, and your, your servant is listening, you know. <laughs> and then I found out that there's a new family who moved in next door and they a little kid called Joshua. <laughs> Friends, we don't need things like that. All of us as, as Christians have the Holy Spirit, the spirit of power, love and self-control. He can, he will enable us if we fan the gift of God, if we fan him into flame.
Well, how do we fan the Holy Spirit into flame? Uh, do we meditate? Do we recharge by some spiritual session of music and worship? How do we rekindle the power of the Spirit? Well, let's see where we see the power of the Spirit, the power of God. For that's what he goes on to speak about. Verse 7 and 8. God gave us spirit, the Holy Spirit, not of fear, but of power. Therefore, verse 8, do not be ashamed of our testimony. Share in the suffering of the gospel. In verse 8, share in the suffering of the gospel by the power of God. What do you then explain about this God? How is God powerful? Well, verse 9 and 10 is about God's power in saving us. The God who saved us, verse 9, and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now he has been manifested in the fruit of the appearing of our Saviour Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Where do we see the power of God, the power of the Spirit in this chapter? It is in the gospel message, the life and immortality that comes through Jesus. It saves us from what? Verse 10, from death. He abolished death. We're saved for something. Verse 9, for a holy calling. Called to live. Uh, in the New Testament, we're not called into ministry as such. We're called to be holy. And we're called for life and for immortality. That's what we saved us for. And it's all summed up in that great phrase there. Our Saviour Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. Save from death. What death? Well, at least it includes physical death. That also is part of God's judgment on our world from Genesis chapter 3. Physical death has great power over us, doesn't it? It makes us helpless. The dying, the dead in West Africa consumed by Ebola. Uh, the picture just last week or two of that three-year-old boy on the shores of that Turkish beach drowned trying to escape from ISIS. Head towards the water, face down. Nothing can raise that boy back to life. It's awful death, isn't it? Despite modern medicine and science, one out of one still die. We cannot stop death. We definitely cannot reverse death. But it's more than that. It's more than just physical. It's eternal. It's spiritual. The physical death is just part of our being under God's judgment. The Bible speaks of God judging through the flood. Uh, in Sunday school, you just see the ark with lots of funny animals, giraffes, you know, kangaroos, you know, donkeys. But you never see the human bodies floating in the water, do you? In 2 Peter chapter 3, it speaks of that same judgment of God only in the future, not by water, but by fire as God comes in final judgment, of, of eternal judgment and hell, of conscious suffering of the destruction of this world. But Jesus saves us 
He abolishes, he destroys that death. He brings life, immortality. We'll have resurrected bodies when he comes again. We're no longer going to hell, but to heaven. He abolished death. That's what God has done. And to underline that God is the one who's done, he says in verse 9, it's nothing we have done, not by our works. Echoes Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, doesn't it? It's not by works, not even by the works of obeying the Moses law, obeying the Ten Commandments. It's Gentiles getting to God without having to obey the law. You cannot add good works. But even more to underline it's God who does it, Look what he says in verse 9 there. Not because of our works, but because of God's own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus, notice when, before the ages began. God had a purpose. He decides it. It's grace. We do not deserve it. We cannot boast about it. It's before even the creation of the world. My wife Karen and I used to have uh, on our fridge a calendar. Uh, with so much going on in our life that whatever something is on, we've got to put it on the calendar. And the basic rule was, if it's not on, it's not on. I wonder if God has a calendar. I'm sure if he had a fridge, he would have a calendar on this fridge, right? <laughs> what would be the most important date on God's calendar of the whole of eternity? It would be the death and resurrection of Jesus. That would be on the calendar. That would be the first thing he puts in. That would be the reason why he has a calendar. Why he has even created the ages to come. It's all about Jesus and what he has done. And now, although he's promised them many times ago, now in verse 10, by his appearing. I used to think it's about Jesus becoming man, appearing as man, his incarnation. But others have argued rightly uh, that it's really about the resurrection, like the resurrection appearances in the Gospels. Jesus has risen. That fits in with what he goes on to say, how he brings life and immortality it's the resurrection of Jesus that now fulfills all of God's plans from eternity. All that is promised in the Old Testament is now here in Jesus. Friends, our salvation is all God. He purposed it. He works it. It's His grace. We do not contribute a thing. We do not boast. My best illustration for grace like this is a bloke, an Australian bloke called Stephen Bradbury. Uh, Bradbury was the first, and I think only Australians have ever won a winter Olympic sport. And he won it in, not meant to show that yet, he won it in um, speed skating. You know that speed skating, go like this, around, around, around. Really boring, isn't it? Uh, not as boring as the, the broom one, you know, like that. But anyway, how does an Australian ever win an event like that? Well, it's because in the final, as they came around the last corner, Stephen Bradbury was some 15 metres behind. Well, he wasn't going to get a thing. And then at the last corner, number one hit number two, and, then, and number three and number four, all down. And then he just sort of skated past them all, and before he knew it, he passed the finish line. He got gold. 
<laughs> the amazing thing was, the only reason why he got into the final was exactly the same thing happened in the semis. <laughs> now, you know what the uh, Americans are like. I don't know if there's any Americans here, but anyway. You know what the Americans are like when they get the uh, gold medal? They get on the podium go, yeah, look at me, right? Well, when they gave the uh, gold medal to Stephen Bradbury, he went... <laughs> Friends, when you and I get the crown of life, we're not going to go, yeah, look at me, look what I have done. And go, thing I have done. Afterwards, Bradbury actually admitted that that was his strategy all along. <laughs> he knew he would never make it, so he was just hoping. And as he got the gold medal, he was thinking that, well, at least I trained really hard for many years. I deserve this. Well, if Bradbury can go like that, how much more we have to go like that? Because we didn't strategize, did we? It wasn't our plan. It was God's plan. And we had no years of training and doing good works. Now it's all of what God has done. Timothy fanned into flame the Holy Spirit, the gift of God. How? Verse 13, by following the pattern of sound words that you heard. That you heard from Paul. Follow his gospel message. That's how you fan to flame the Holy Spirit, by remembering the powerful events of Jesus' death and resurrection. That powerful message is the power of the Spirit. So no one in the very next breath, verse 14, he says, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. That's how we fan into the flame the gift of the Spirit by reminding ourselves of this powerful gospel. Friends, it's the gospel message itself, that message of grace, of Christ giving life, that's what gives us spine and backbone. That's what we go back to. Suffering for the gospel, no shame. And so Paul not only asks Timothy to suffer with him, he asked Timothy to guard the gospel as well. After all, he, Paul, has guarded it. Look at verse 12. Which is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. No shame. Verse 13 and 14, follow the pattern of sound words, etc. Verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Guard it, even in the face of suffering. How do you guard something? I don't know if you heard in the radio a few weeks ago, again, another terrible ISIS tragedy. Whether you heard of this archaeologist, Khaled Assad. Uh, he's someone who was the head of antiquities, in the UNESCO World Heritage Site, he was trying to protect various relics that uh, he'd been trying to protect these relics for about over 30 years. ISIS was going to grab it and either take it with them or destroy it, who knows? They tortured him to find out the location of these relics. He would not give in 
He guarded those relics. For over 30 years, he'd given his life to this and was not going to give it all up now. He'd rather die protecting it for the next generation. And he was beheaded. For over 30 years, the Apostle Paul had guarded the gospel. He was not going to give it up now. He'd rather die protecting it for the next generation. And he was beheaded. And so, Timothy, you do the same. The idea of the good deposit, it's like a money being deposited, something of value. And if you want to extend the bowl illustration, it's like now finally they found the vaccine. And you're the one carrying it to Sierra Leone. And you enter into the, uh, the airport, you've got this you know, sort of metal case with all the vials of the vaccine in there. It's really important, it's chained to your hand, you know, and you're walking through immigration. You're feeling pretty important, aren't you? There's no shame in guarding that which can save lives. You don't try to um, add something to it, dilute it. You know, as you're going through the plane, you say, oh, you know, this sparkling wine's quite nice. Maybe I should add it to the vial, you know, shake it up, you know, see what that will do. You don't just sort of leave the bag somewhere in a bathroom and then forget about it. No, you guard it with your life. The deposit, the gospel, friends, cannot be improved on. It's not like some scientific discovery that gets better with time, no. It's God's grace delivered once for all time in Jesus. Passed on through the apostle. Verse 13, Paul says, follow the pattern of sound teaching you've had from me. At one level, it's quite easy, isn't it, as a Christian to guard the gospel. You don't have to invent it. You don't have to improve it. You just say it as it is. Keep it as it is. But at the other level, it's quite hard, isn't it? Because that's exactly why Paul was persecuted for it. Now, what about us? At one level, Paul is not the average pastor. right? Chapter 1, verse 1, he's appointed by God. 1, verse 11, he's the apostle. Uh, Paul, I reckon, would have made it on the calendar, on God's fridge. And Timothy is not just uh, any uh, CBS trainee either. Uh, he is the son of the apostle. He's the apostolic delegate, the one who actually takes on the gospel to the next generation. But it's interesting, in verse 12, Paul says that God is able to guard that gospel until that day. That is the day of the second coming, the day of judgment. Now, obviously, Paul and Timothy are not around anymore. I mean, this Paul is, but different Paul. Uh, Timothy, they're not around, so how are we going to actually keep the gospel going? Well, that's the point. We have to keep the gospel going to our generation and beyond. And from the time of Paul and Timothy through the ages, there's always been an attack on that death and resurrection of Jesus. In the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church distorted it, institutionalized the gospel. The message became salvation through the church. You got to belong to this Catholic Church and do all its uh, different sacraments and do all its good works in order to get to heaven. They added to the gospel. Not unlike 
what faced Paul as the non-Jewish Christians, the non-Christian Jews, the non-Christian Jews, what they tried to get Paul to do, to add on to the gospel. And still today it's a perennial threat. People want to add to the gospel. The idea if we can get right with God, declared right with God, justified by faith alone, it's always being attacked. These days it's attacked by people de-emphasizing our relationship, our individual relationship with God. People want to say, no, it's about the community. Now, there's a book that's out called Atonement as Community. That is, you know, atonement, Jesus' death, but, oh, if you love others, then that's, that's atonement as well. People want to stress our relationship with each other rather than our relationship with God. People want social issues, health, happiness, environmental issues. That is the important thing. Not relationship with God, not eternity, not life, death, heaven and hell stuff. That just sort of fades into the background. Paul wants to guard the gospel. That's what we should do as well. It will mean suffering. People will think that we are arrogant, intolerant, old-fashioned, stupid, out of touch. You try to say to your friends, your workmates, your parents, that you're going to give up your professional work and do ministry. Well, especially your workmates and friends, they'll say, oh, how interesting. Which is really a euphemism for how stupid. That's what they're really thinking inside. I mean, if they really thought it was interesting, they'd actually stop and ask you about it and talk about it, wouldn't they? But they don't. They say, oh, pass the piece of cake. There is suffering for holding on to the gospel and preaching it. But notice, Paul says, God will help us. Verse 12, God is able to guard this gospel. It's very unexpected, isn't it? God has entrusted the gospel to Paul, and so you expect that Paul has to guard the gospel, but in verse 12, Paul says, oh yeah, it's been entrusted to me, and guess what? God is going to guard it. That is not just left to the power and ability of Paul himself, a human, to guard it. Yes, it is responsibly 100%, but God is the one who will do it 100%. One of the main things that our CBS trainees keep on learning is that God is sovereign, that God is able, not us. And so Timothy, verse 13, is to follow Paul's word, but notice it is the Spirit of God, verse 14, by whom he can guard the gospel. That is also the three Ps that we often talk about in campus Bible study. Proclamation, people, prayer. That's how the message of the gospel goes out by proclaiming it, this message of life from death. It's people, it's us who have to preach it and protect it. It's prayer to God, the one who enables us to protect it. We've got a lot going for us. Powerful message. Powerful God. Suffering for the gospel. No shame. Well, let's draw some conclusions then. And think about what unashamed suffering might mean for us at this juncture 
when we think about the possibilities of full-time ministry. Uh, let's think it when we think. Let's face it when we think about full-time ministry, uh, mission work, uh, devoting our life to gospel work. Our natural temptation is um, is to shrink back, isn't it? We're tempted to withdraw. Even uh, the process of stepping into ministry, let alone ministry itself, it's scary. I mean, that's why Paul wrote to Timothy, isn't it? I don't think, as some commentaries think, that Timothy was especially a timid kind of personality. Just because he was Tim doesn't mean he was timid. He did not have a timid ID, you know, identity. In chapter 1, lots of people deserted Paul, right? Did they all have a timid ID? Were they all, you know, so scaredy cats, that kind of personality? No, I think, I think all of us as Christians are tempted to withdraw. That's the natural reaction we have when there's danger, when there's suffering, when there's attack upon us. I watched this uh, funny cat video that my, my daughters showed me. You know those funny cat videos? Uh, there's one particular one. You just sort of uh, Google YouTube kind of thing. And you go, cat, fright, jump, right? And there's a picture of a cat eating uh, his dish down there. And this guy sneaks a, a little cucumber, right, just behind the cat. And this cucumber greens, so it looks a bit like a snake, you see. So you see the cat eating, eating. And then he looks around, and he goes, it's amazing. It's a split second. The cat goes, like that. <laughs> That's what we do, friends, when we are faced with suffering. None of us like pain. Our natural reaction is the fright and flight and run. None of us like pain because we grow up wanting happiness. Um, my wife is Australian, and as she was going through her teenage years, her parents said, Karen, whatever makes you happy makes us happy. My parents are Chinese. When I was going through my teenage years, my mother says to me, Joshua, what makes me happy will also make you happy. But either way, east or west, notice it's all about being happy. Isn't it? That's what life is about, to, to be able to enjoy life. We do not like suffering. Oh, yes, university is a bit of suffering. You've got to study a bit more, right? But you're looking forward to security that will come. And most of us try to have a good time while we're at university as well, especially if you're nuts. Now, <laughs> we want to avoid suffering at all costs. We want to enjoy life. I think the Westerners tend to look towards enjoyment and pleasure more. Uh, the Asians look towards the security more. But it's all much the same, isn't it? It's so ingrained in our psyche that we want to enjoy and be secure. If you're going to step into ministry, it basically means you will be less secure. Uh, most likely, you will not earn as much as your high school peers in 10 years' time. Most likely, you won't be able to afford your own home. The great dreams of our country, isn't it? And the expectation of our parents, of our peers, well, they'll just get disappointed at us. No wonder our natural reaction is to withdraw. 
we'll miss out on so much of this world. But remember Demas, who deserted Paul because he loved this world. Paul did not want Timothy to go through the same route as Demas. He wanted Timothy not to be ashamed of the gospel. But at times, not to be ashamed of the gospel means that the world will be ashamed of us. In the eyes of the world, full-time ministries look down upon, down in status. He gave up his, her career for that? Ah, what a shame. And it's a shame to the family. They can't boast before the family barbecue or, or the yum cha about you anymore. You know, if you go to Dubai to work in expat in a multinational, oh, how cool. Aren't your kids just going to have a great cross-cultural experience? You go to Dubai to work as a missionary preaching the gospel, how interesting. <laughs> Aren't your kids going to miss out? You go to West Africa and join a medical team to fight Ebola, how sacrificial. You go to West Africa to preach the gospel. How interesting. The expectation that the world would be ashamed of us weighs heavily on our decision making. Contributes to the fear factor. We want to just jump like a cat. But the one thing that will enable us to overcome that fear of suffering is when we have the bigger picture. It was the largest Ebola outbreak in history. On the 26th of September 2014, the World Health Organization said, the Ebola epidemic ravages part of West Africa and is the most severe acute public health emergency seen in modern times. Friends, our world was on the brink of disaster. It was touch and go whether it would become a pandemic all around the globe. Uh, some of my friends, uh, Charles Gages, he plays a game called um, Pandemic. <laughs> and you see it there, and you see, oh, there it is. It's a sort of collaborative game, right? Nobody, you don't play against each other, you play with each other. Everyone has a different role, and together you're trying to stop the virus from going everywhere. Someone invents a vaccine, someone's on the front line. Friends, our world saw the bigger picture. People played different roles, just like the board game. From the heroics, medical staff on the front line, to those inventing the vaccine, they knew the risks, but it was worth it. The world was worth saving. Now, we've not heard much, have we, on the news about Ebola? And no news is good news. Because about three months ago, a vaccine seemed to have been developed that's almost 100% effective. Humanity played the game. We rolled the dice, and it seemed we won. But there is another pandemic raging in our world. More widespread, more deadly. The kill ratio is not one out of two, it's one out of one. And its spread is complete to every single person on planet Earth. And its consequence is death, eternal death. And it's not just the game. Do we see the bigger picture? 
Our world is powerless and helpless and cannot save itself. Death is the killer of our hopes, our achievements, our relationships. I had a friend in high school, did medicine in New South Wales Uni, got through. Coming home from working up at uh, Newcastle, having worked a 24-plus-hour shift, killed in a car accident. His mother was distraught for many, many years. Death, relationships are gone. Death, our achievements are gone. But in the gospel, God has acted powerfully to save us. And it's not humanity who rolls the dice, it's God who doesn't need a dice, who has acted. And Paul and company and Lois and Eunice and Timothy, and now we, we can be involved in this. Women, give up your small ambitions and spend your time, why not, for the gospel. For lots of women or for just a few kids in your family. Remember, you're not wiping noses. You're building character. I recently spoke to a uh, bunch of uh, students about their degree and, you know, and ministry. And they expected me to convince them out of their degree to do ministry. But what I spoke to them first of all was about why not consider motherhood. And many of them were thinking of getting married and but they never knew that, hey, being a mother means that maybe I, don't, I cannot follow that degree full-time. You know, maybe I can work part-time, but are you saying I can't keep chasing this degree and be a mother? Friends, that is a more widespread challenge to women than full-time ministry is a challenge to men. Now, a lot more of you women will become wife and mothers right, than us men who will end up in full-time ministry. That is a challenge we need to think about. We are those who are afraid. And the more riches, the more our parents have given us the harder it is to make the decision. A friend called um, Andrew, and uh, he's from Singapore, and he migrated here to Australia, and his parents bought him a house, you know, in the eastern suburbs, you know, that overlooks the water, Rose Bay, that kind of area. When they finally sold the house, uh, Mrs Westfield bought the house, and that's the kind of house it was. Uh, he was given by his father, uh, who actually had a very good relationship with him, a $200,000 golf membership in Singapore. Playing golf is a bit more expensive in Singapore. He became a Christian at New South Wales Uni. He uh, graduated as an accountant, worked as an accountant for a little while. But every time he read his Bible, he saw the message of the gospel. He heard the core of the gospel. And so one day, as he uh, prepared very hard for this conversation with his dad, to tell him about his considerations about full time, he sat his dad down. He said, Dad, I have something to tell you. I'm thinking of being a minister. 
his dad looked at him and said, son, you don't have to aim that high. You know, Singaporean minister like Lee Kuan Yew, you know, prime minister, you know, minister in the parliament, you know. And when Andrew said, uh, actually, dad, it's not that kind of minister, it's these other kind of minister, his dad hit the roof uh, for many years. When he actually had children, Andrew had children, his dad actually said, look, well, you, know, you can have your children, but I'm not going to go and see them. And yet, he went into ministry. Very hard decision. Just the, just the thought of having that conversation makes you think you're going to die. But years later, his parents came around, his dad even got baptised and supported him in ministry. I've seen it, not just in his case, in many, many cases. Parents, people come around. But at that moment, when you've got to make that choice, it's very, very hard. It's like going to the Questacon and having that experience of free fall. I know you've ever been to the Questacon and I'll end with this. Questacon, Canberra. A science museum, a very hands-on kind of thing. Ground floor, you all must go to this, right? Now you walk in and it's to test and have you experienced the flight and fright experience like that cat did. And what you do is you walk up this three-storey tower and you slide down a six-metre vertical drop and then the slide curves over like that and goes like that. And I saw it and all these kids were doing it. Wee, wee. I, like, I could do this, I could do this. So I got into this grey suit, right, and walked up. And then as I walked up towards it, there's a sign there that says, if you have any heart conditions, do not go any further. Okay, I don't have heart conditions. I go further up, climb up this two-storey tower. And as I go up there, there's a sign which says, um, this is the point of no return. And I looked at it, and I looked a bit further, and there's a man there. Because all you do is you hold on to that bar, you see, and you let go. And there's a man there with a towel, just wiping, wiping the, the bar. <laughs> and I thought, oh, maybe I'd better go back. But then my wife was videoing. So, <laughs> so I grabbed onto that bar, and I looked down, and then I let go. And I tell you, the second I let go, I thought I was going to die. <laughs> but guess what? Like all the other kids, I went, wee, although I didn't go wee, I just went, ah, you know? <laughs> Friends, it's a difficult and hard decision. It's scary. But like, like Andrew, like my other friends, in the end, it turns out basically okay. In the end, parents come around. In the end, your friends, if they're really your friends, will, will still be your friends. But even if not, in the end, on Judgment Day, they will have to recognise your wisdom. Friends, that is the bigger picture. No fear, no shame. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the power of the gospel. Thank you for Jesus' resurrection that destroys death and brings life, eternal life, immortal life, 
resurrection body life to light. Please, Father, help us not to be ashamed of that gospel, a message that can save our world. And please, Father, help us to be those who are not afraid to consider taking that gospel as our full-time life work. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.